Tiger's competitive career is over. Yes. Competitive. Yes, I think so. Three of his four wins started with 70. Tiger in good position. Return. I've been sure you get this question a lot. Do you think he'll return in his previous form? No. What a day. A 68 for Tiger Woods. Hunting his fifth green jacket. Tiger finishes with a 67. He'll be wearing red on Sunday. Hunting his fifth green jacket. I don't think he's a guy that handles adversity well. I just think he's done as a public figure. I don't think we'll see him play golf again. Many doubted we ever see it. Here it is. The return to glory. say something I've been saying for about five days. No, you're crying. Uh, welcome to another edition of Swing Thoughts here on uh, TSN 1150 Hamilton and around the world. Uh, you can pick us up on iTunes. It's Golf Spiritual Leader, along with uh, the mental performance coach for the Glen Abbey Academy. He is, in fact, uh, Tim O'Connor. Hello, sir. How are you? Hang on a second. Let me just uh, do one thing here. Let me turn that down and turn you up. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fantastic. Week, eh? Oh yeah, <laughs> that was quite the week. Quite the week in the uh, history of uh, of humble and Tim and the uh, the Swing Thoughts podcast. We, Tim and I have been uh, back and forth all week. I wonder what we're going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. What could we? What What could is we? there that would go on that would possibly be worth mining for? Gold. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, this uh, program brought to you by TaylorMade, number one driver in golf, M5, M6 are out, and uh, I can tell you a little bit about that uh, later on in the show. George McNamara is our guest. We'll explain who he is. Along with Adidas, uh, we are going to give away, uh, a, we, we, we had a really up tick in engagement this week. Uh, we did a couple things on our Facebook page, and so we've opened the show up to a lot more people. We're going to give away the prizes, a couple dozen golf balls, a tailor-made fitting, and an Adidas sort of um, like package of like shoes, shirts, uh, shorts, the whole 360 thing. An apparel uh, pack. Thank you. And we will do that when our next segment uh, begins in about uh, a half an hour or so. Tim O'Connor is the uh, he's a great guy. I can tell you that from experience. <laughs> and, uh, You're and, pretty swell yourself. And you know? uh, Tim, I'm just trying to explain who we are. I host a program called the Humble and Fred Show on Funny Eight Twenty, one of the sister stations here to TSN 1150. Tim writes uh, books. You may remember his uh, one of his most famous, The Feeling of Greatness, the Mo Norman story, which he has just re-edited a couple of years ago, another great edition, as well a columnist on golf and has been covering the game for a long time. So, uh, I think we've talked on the podcast. You've actually been to the Masters. When was the last one that you attended? Uh, 1998, when Marco Mira won. Um, I covered seven Masters, uh, including 97, when Tiger won. I was, uh, it was so cool to be out there. I was, uh, I was trying to get somewhat close to the 18th green, but I just remember that the it was like the air was electric uh it was just you know i just knew that i was i knew i was witnessing his witnessing witnessing you're witnessing 
<laughs> Whitney. I think you what know, I say. I was observing, witnessing I, history. And like, uh, wait a second. I know you're cool and everything, but like, but I just can't talk. But no, no. It's just like the fact that you shorten words. It's like, yeah, I was witnessing some history. It's like when my daughter a couple of years ago she she said something about someone was a rando, and I said, excuse me, rando. She goes, yeah, like a random. I go, you realize you're only leaving off the M. <laughs> I remember being in a meeting, and a guy goes, in all earnestness, he goes, my reco is, and I went, that would be your recommendation, right? Yeah. So Anyways, you, we do you, digress. You, you were witnessing um, something um, I was witnessing extraordinary. the first man of color to win a major championship, no less, at Augusta National, a symbol of the Old South. And what was so cool is that all the servers, uh, waiters, if you will, and of course, they're all black. They were all outside, and you know, along the balcony, and they were there to witness it. And you know, tears they had streaming. So there's a connection. Tears watching Tiger win the fifth time. Tears when he won the first time. Okay. Um, no, I know that story. I see that really moved you. No, I was just I'm just listening. <laughs> uh, no, I know this. I I think. Uh, you know, that's a f- the famous story about the Augusta staff that had come out to see a black man win the Masters, where not many years before, uh, within a few decades, really, a black man hadn't even been allowed to play as a professional at Augusta. So, you know, it, it's an interesting place to start with the Tiger Woods story, because unlike any other athlete, maybe comparable to Ali, because of his color, because of his ethnicity, because of it being an American, you know, icon of sports, it was so unusual. And and maybe this last 22 years in between the first and the last Masters, you know, is says a lot about how the world has changed in golf. I think Augusta, even the week before having the women's amateur there, and then three years ago or four years ago starting the drive pitch and putt thing, I mean, those are all really sort of forward-thinking. You can at least get the sense that Augusta National wants to change with changing times. Absolutely. I think a lot of that can be attributed to Billy Payne, who was the chair of the Olympics in Atlanta and a really forward-looking guy. And it's really interesting to see the change in Augusta National from being kind of like an anchor if you will, one of the symbols of, you know, white traditional golf. I don't just let's halt all progress. <laughs> and now now they are uh, leaders in it. So it's it's really neat to see. They they added, uh, you know, the two female members, one of whom is uh, Condoleezza Rice. Rice. That's right. And so it's it. And I'm not surprised, really, in, in, in a lot of ways that they've kind of caught up socially because Augusta National, in the way they ran the Masters tournament, they have been known for running the best tournament in the world. They were the ones who basically invented the plus and minus system for seeing where golfers were in relation to par, which made it so much easier for right away. You just looked at that scoreboard and you knew where it was. Although when I was at the Masters (laughs) – um I could never tell who was leading because they still have the strokes in red or green. I'm no, and, and I'm colorblind, too. I, I, I can't. I don't even know what it. I'm like, zero, one. Is this binary? I don't know what's going on. No, I, I can't <laughs> exactly. tell the difference between the colors. 
Um, well, we um, later, as I mentioned, we're going to talk to a friend of yours, part of the world of extraordinary golf, and we'll explain what that is to some of you newer swing thought people. But I thought what we do for this first it's a cult, it's a cult but it's a great cult. Um, what I thought we would do for this first segment is maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what you saw and what it meant to you, and I'll do the same. And then what I think we should do is maybe share some of the lessons that we've been talking about for three years in in terms of what Tiger did, and I'm going to connect it to Scott Fawcett, the decade golf yeah. system, and how, you know, once you start playing golf again yourselves, how some of those lessons you can take to the golf course. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to start? I mean, you know, you you were one of dozens of people to text me <laughs> and message me. And I can tell you from some of the men, I had hundreds of emails from people that listen to the Humble and Fred show that know I'm a, you know, pretty big Tiger Woods fan. But just from a... Uh, uh, why don't you go first and, and you know tell us what your what your thoughts are and and I'll do is uh, I'll do the same. Well, uh, like I said, I owned at the start. Um, I was texting with my brother back and forth uh, all during it, and uh, at the very end, you know, in that joyous abandon um, that was going on because he came off the, and I'd never seen him uh, celebrate like that. Just like just he let it go yeah. and you know what to me that was that wouldn't have happened unless he'd gone through the the pain that he did you know all of that overcoming all of that i, I just think that that we've seen a, a transformed tiger and uh anyways my brother um at the end he goes he goes run for president in 2020 <laughs> <laughs> who said that patrick says, then he says stop crying and i said and it, because he knew. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Is that your brother, Pat? Uh, Sean. Sean, because I know Pat, your brother, is a big fan of the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Sean, go, yeah. So he says, stop crying, because he knew. And I said, I can't. And, of course, you know, I go back, he can't. And I text you, you can't. And, and, and I just saw that all over social media. And I think what that was, was people connecting with just the what he overcame, you know, overcoming. And I think a lot of it, not just the the you know four knee surgeries four back surgeries i mean unbelievable right and being 43 and going against guys who could be his kids all of that but the bigger piece for me was how he overcame basically his own shadows his own stumbles i mean the guy grew up in public you know just shamed <laughs> you know through all that the 20, uh, 2009 and all the philandering everything that came and then all the stumbles afterwards and I really think that he's overcoming basically grown up real quick and I think that a lot of us were connecting with that and particularly what it meant for his children and his mother and his girlfriend um, yeah a lot of that stuff yeah, I don't really mean. I, you know, I, I've been talking about it so much on uh, the other show that I do. I'm not sure, you know, what little pieces I, I would share. You, I can just tell you, maybe more of a personal thing. You know, you know, I, I was just joking with Tim before the show started. I said, let's not try and out profound each other. No one likes Tiger more than I do. Don't even try. But, for, <laughs> but for me and a lot of people that know me. You know, I don't know where it was that I caught on to Tiger. Somewhere around the 94, 95 U.S. Amateur. I just remember they, they in those days they were broadcasting the Amateur 
for the first time, and Johnny Miller was doing it, and I, you know, I'd heard of this guy, kind of like when a lot of Canadians heard of Wayne Gretzky when he was a little kid. So I'd heard of Tiger Woods, but I sort of caught on early. But what it was for me early on and then through most of his career was my dad and I, who, like a lot of sons and fathers, you know, there wasn't a conversation I had with my father over the last, I'd say, 30 or 40 years of his life that didn't include golf. And then when Tiger came on the scene, after every Tiger victory, my father would call me. And we would talk nice. over what happened. And so, you know, like a lot of sons and fathers, mothers and daughters and such, and it, it was all wrapped up in it. So when Tiger went away and had all those trials and tribulations, it was like, it was also, I don't mean to be too maudlin about this, but it was around my dad died in 2006. And it was almost like he never got to see the fall from grace. And like a lot of, there's a lot of elements. Like I say, there's so much to it. In 2008, he wins the U.S. Open at 32. You think, well, he's just going to keep on winning majors. And then, so what a lot of it is, is he went away, shames and all that stuff and public humiliation. His game de degenerated. And it was the fact that after all of that, 11 years between majors, 14 between masters, that he comes back and we get to rejoice in his achievement. But for me personally, it was like, you know, when he birdied 16, I started to cry because not cry, I'm weeping. But, you know, I was like, because it all became so real. Absolutely. And as golf fans and golf aficionados, we all know all too well that <laughs> you can be doing just fine with two holes to go and then crap the bed. We've all done it. We've all seen it. It's a tough game. Even Tiger oh, yeah. said Tiger said in his post interview. Something about, hey, listen, you know, in, in 2005 to Marco, I bogeyed last, I bogeyed the last two holes to get into a playoff. He knew it wasn't over, but at that moment, it just became highly likely. And uh, like you and like a lot of my brothers were texting, we're all misting up because just because of all of that, what it all meant to me personally. And I got to tell you, it was overwhelming the notes that I got from people. I asked one of my one of the kids that used to produce the morning show where his status was I, I don't know who I should congratulate more Tiger Woods or Humble Howard because <laughs> like, <laughs> ah, like it was ridiculous. I, I have a fairly new relationship about a year and a half old and I said to her the day before I said just just understand this. I said I know you don't know the game you know I like Tiger but I said if he wins tomorrow afternoon I'm going to cry and she said really? And then we had this discussion i said honey on monday if he wins it's going to be the lead story on the planet and she really didn't appreciate his global effect until the day after that i sent her a, a screen cap of all four new york newspapers and it was the cover of every one of them so as i joked with her this week i said oh it wasn't until the new york times said it was cool yeah, yeah but yeah. that's what it was i guess for me that you know it was uh you know, I, I hung in there like I did. I had a lot of people. We talked before the show. Lots of friends of mine hate Tiger, think it's stupid, think he's a jerk, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I would say on this uh, holy weekend, those that live in glass houses, you know, it's it's easy. People love to tear down, you know, icons. And he gave us lots of reason to tear him down. But oh, he certainly did. He gave us a ton. Um, I always I. For people who don't forgive, uh, I 
I don't know how they may take it, but I would say take a hard look at yourself. Do you forgive yourself? Yeah. You know, what's the stuff that you're projecting out on the world? Because the stuff that you put out to the world, uh, take a good look at yourself. At what? Because you won't see that in other people unless you have this stuff within yourself, or at least the fear that you have these things within yourself. But yeah, I think that you know I, I'm not going to explain why people cry, but <laughs> I think that it it's it's like classic. You look at. All the movies that make us cry or really move us. So many of them are about redemption, you know, about connection and family and love. I mean, uh, I think it was, was it uh, The Rookie, the Dennis Quaid movie? Uh, he's like the pitcher who... Yeah. All of a sudden he gets his arm back and he throws, uh, you got yeah, the speed gun there? Yeah, he's throwing 110 miles an hour you know, fastballs. And I don't know, what, at age 40 or something, yeah. he breaks into the league. So he plays his first MLB game, and everyone thinks, oh, he finally made it to the majors. That's not what it was about. It was about finally getting approval from his father. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it was about. So that's what all this stuff connects with. And so what I'm, where I'm going to go with this is that um, I, was a, I was a media consultant for Nike Golf Canada for 10 years. And uh, so I, it was all Tiger – while we while I was working with them, Tigers win in majors, you know, a couple times a year and stuff. And so my kids uh, watched me watching the Masters, connecting with Tiger. We had Tiger posters in the basement and all this <laughs> stuff. And you know, the one of Tiger, you know, the the 2008 when he won, sunk the putt to go into the playoff at the U.S. Open. And so my kids relate to that big time, yeah. especially my son Sean. And so it's funny. He's texting me. He said that all of his buddies, they're watching it. They're all wearing red shirts. <laughs> that's awesome. You can imagine all that stuff, right? That's that's just awesome. But, um, you know, I just think that so much of it is just overcoming adversity, connection to to those people that we love and all that. And, and that's what we were seeing with that. When he's hugging his kids and stuff, it's like, oh my gosh! But yeah, well, you're a, you're a writer, and you'll appreciate this. You know, one of the the sort of hack devices. It's not hack, but it's a device in literature. is called the hero's journey, and and movies and most absolutely. most most every narrative has, you know, uh, an arc, and so it was so neatly tied up the arc of this hero's journey, and. Uh, and the return to glory. It's funny because in about um, in about seven minutes' time, we're going to have to go to our first break, and uh, I'm going to play you something before we do. And, and what it is is it's uh, Jim Nance, and and what what happened was on Sunday they you know they had the rain coming, so they you know they have the earlier start, and then in the afternoon CBS reruns the Masters in its regular time. But what I didn't know. Excuse me for a couple of days was Tiger after doing all his press he came back down to Butler cabin and him and Nance and Faldo did 15 minutes as an insert during that rerun but they did a live interview really? it's about 14 or 15 minutes long and I put it up on our Facebook page and I said on my Facebook on the, our Facebook page I said you know it's a long video but the last 90 seconds is worth it. And what happens is, and I'm going to play him, rap, Nance wrapping up, trying to put into perspective what Tiger mm. meant to him. And I'm going to tell you, there's Faldo, Tiger, and Nance, and two of the three of them are crying. It's, <laughs> it's, 
It's unbelievable. Um, you know, that's you know that's so cool that you mentioned the hero's journey because uh, yeah, that's the the arc in in literature, but that's also the arc in any change that goes on in a person's life. Yeah, absolutely. It really does. You you have you come in with your 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 regular regular life. You see that it's not working, so you get like the what's called the invitation. And once you accept the invitation, like Neo with the, with the blue pill or, exactly, the pill or whatever, yeah. descent. So Tiger certainly had his descent into the shit. And then... You, you can't really... Think, we're on a terrestrial radio station, you know? I'm not oh. sure if you remember that. That's <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, anyway, okay. but I know what you're saying. And the only reason I'm giving you this side is we have five minutes before we wrap it up. So let's uh, let's just do a little uh, swing thoughts. But anyway, it just it, it's the transformation right. that, that you need to go through the stuff to change. And so what did I take out of that? Uh, uh, the things that people could watch from that. Um, certainly the course management piece. Did that struck you? Well, that's what I wanted to get to. You know, we took this uh, seminar, Tim and I, last year. We talked a lot about it called Decade Golf. And, and Scott Fawcett, who was a former tour player, science guy, uh, uh, you know, he's accumulated a lot of statistics. Math genius. Math guy. And he pointed out in that seminar we took, and, and it was an interesting thing. He said, he said, Tiger Woods is one of the most conservative players of all time and i connect this with something hank haney his former coach said this week i was listening to sirius xm and uh haney talked about one of tiger's sort of unheralded strengths and haney said is he's the best lag putter that haney has ever seen now everyone absolutely everyone saw that putt tiger that amazing putt on nine, the seventy-foot lag, but back to that was brilliant. It was ridiculous. But, yeah. but but what we learned from decade is if you can just put the ball on the green, thirty, forty, twenty-five, whatever feet, and two putt, you can take a lot of pressure off yourself. And for me, just as a an observer, and by the way, what we're going to do, Tim and I are going to. We're going to do the show. We're going to do uh, the next segment. And then we're going to do a podcast extra because we got lots of Tiger stuff left. But that was the big takeaway, I would say, for somebody who, who was watching and go, well, how can I apply that lesson to my 15 handicap? And I think that was what it would be for me. You hit, you just hit to the middle of the green. Um, like on 12, when four out of five hit into the, hit into the water there, where did Tiger go? Center left. I just texted my brother. Went very Jack Nicholas. Yeah, you know. And then on um, on fifteen. Yeah, same thing. Center right left himself a sixty footer. That was very. It was just Tiger smart. Same on eighteen. It's just like you. You just play smart golf. So Haney and 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 us and Fawcett. You know what we would say at this point in terms of a takeaway and strategy is just remember what we we learned, which is. No, no three putts. Tiger only had, I think, one all week. No penalty shots. Tiger didn't make a double. Never had mm -hmm. a stroke. Never had a penalty shot. No three putts. No penalty shots. And no two chips. And that two chip part is for the amateurs listening. That if you're near a green, if you can just get on the green versus taking another chip to get on the green. Or what a lot, a lot of times will happen is you will hit a bad chip and have a 50, 60 footer that you three putt. So, again, lag putting is so important, and you could see how important it was to him winning, which was strange because when he came on, as you said, 22 years ago, he, he reorganized golf, but at that time, he was so much longer than everyone. Well, he ain't anymore. Molinari was out driving him on the back nine. 
that I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, but, go ahead. But Tiger was also not – he was swinging in control. The driver's always been the weak part of his game all over the place. He was hitting three woods, but when he was driving, he was putting that thing in play. Nice little cuts. Well, I'm, I'm smiling because it was funny because Nicholas was saying, oh, Tiger's never been a good driver. I don't, what do you, what does it matter? He somehow found the fairway. Uh, okay, here's what we're going to do. We've got to take a break. I'm, uh, I'm going to play you this uh, little clip that I put together. I think you'll find it interesting. So this is the last sort of 45 seconds. Jim Nance thanking Tiger for coming down to Butler Cabin. George McNamara is standing by. We're going to talk about freeing up your golf game when we come back. And we'll also announce our winners. Tim's got more to say on our podcast, extra, as do I, about Tiger Woods. But in the meantime, have a listen to this. And for someone who's been coming here for 34 years, my first was Jack Nicholas's last and I'm walking off the course that day I didn't know Ken Venturi very well but he looked at me and said young man you may be around here for a long time I can promise you one thing you'll never live to see a day like this again at Augusta you know what <laughs> Ken Venturi was wrong <laughs> this was as That's good as it will ever be yeah this was truly a, a moment of greatness for the sport for you for everyone who celebrates this game Ken, it was great of you to come back down here and visit with us too Tiger thank you for an exceptional exceptional moment that everyone will treasure you got it absolutely as long as the game is played Tiger Woods the champion again here at Augusta And it's uh, great to be back with you on uh, Swing Thoughts and uh, Week 2 on uh, TSN 1150 in Hamilton. We're crossing our fingers that uh, one day we'll be uh, on all the TSN uh, properties. All right? It will be. (laughs) It will Uh, be. I'm Humble Howard, uh, golf spiritual leader on Swing Thoughts, and, of course, part of the Humble and Fred Show, Tim O'Connor, O'ConnorGolf.ca, mental performance coach, and uh, just an uh, all-around fantastic uh, character. Tim, we're really excited because Adidas and TaylorMade so graciously have given us support and uh, we certainly thank them. And also, thanks to all the new people that have liked our Swing Thoughts Facebook page. Very nice. Many, many people. Yeah. Um, and from all the, you know, and all you had to do to enter was to correctly identify that we were doing Swing Thoughts episode 88 and our very first episode on TSN. So here we go. The, uh, the dozen golf balls are going to go to Don. Uh, Don Jaycox, so congratulations to her. Michael Becker um, gets a dozen balls. These are the TP5s. They're amazing. Uh, and the tailor-made full bag fitting goes to Paul Nixon, so congratulations. And the Adidas season opener, the all-new 2 or 360 XT shoes and the ultimate uniform, the uh, famous uh, 365 bottoms, the all-new all ultimate 365 polos, that whole thing goes to John Russell. So thank you very much. Congratulations, everybody. 
So there you go. And uh, we're so excited to be continuing with Adidas and TaylorMade. And this contesting will continue next month. We'll have another prize package for you to win during the PGA Championship. Uh, now, though, to some some great takeaways for uh, this morning's episode. Tim, why don't you introduce your friend? Yeah, we're uh, we're really pleased to have uh, yeah a friend of mine, uh, George McNamara. Uh, George has been teaching golf for fifty years, and he was the fiftieth PGA Master Professional way back in eighty uh, eight, and he's the managing partner of the Golf Zone in Honeybrook, Pennsylvania. And I met. George threw uh, a workshop ex- extraordinary golf a few years ago in uh, Palm Desert, and uh, so uh, welcome to uh, Swing Thoughts, George. Tim, thanks for having us. All right. Um, so, so George, why don't you sort of take us a little bit? Because what I want to get into here is a bit of a, how our listeners can, you know, find out a little bit more of what they have. You know, within them to play good golf, but also how to, you know, maybe play with you know, your spouse or your child and how to coach them. Um, you know, uh, Howard's been talking about wanting to take his uh, his friend uh, Rachel out and wondered, oh, who should I get to, to coach her? And I said, Howard, you can coach her. So I want to get into that. But George, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you came to be an extraordinary golf uh, disciple. You know, what What did you used to do and, and what sort of changed for you? Yeah, Tim, I was a, a very traditional teacher trained by the PGA, much like all PGA pros are trained. And uh, I worked at a private club for 30 some years and gave the same people lessons basically for 20 of those years. And finally one day I looked up and said, you know, n- nobody's getting any better here. And so uh, I think I have to do something a little bit different. So I sought out a couple of really great instructors. One was a, a real national instructor, maybe considered one of the best in the country. And I spent a year with him. And uh, I flew back and forth to his location. I'm not going to mention who it was. And after that year, I decided that that's really no different than what I was doing. I didn't see much happening with that. Uh, 2004, I attended a PGA teaching summit in uh, Florida. And uh, Fred Shoemaker gave a presentation, a two-hour presentation. It blew me away. It was uh, almost opposite of everything I've been trained to do. And I decided to take a look at that and see if it would make a difference in in my coaching. And uh, it's literally changed the way I coach, changed the way I live, it's changed my life. Uh, You know, George, I I would have welcomed to the show. Um, Thank you, Howard. I would have... uh wanted to sort of back up a little bit which is maybe you could t- and that's interesting about your journey but i'd like to talk if you can a little bit about all those years you spent teaching in a traditional manner the guru i tell you what to do you memorize it if you can and and and, and how that model of golf has really never helped anybody and 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 what what was wrong with that? Maybe talk a little bit about the old model and what the shoemaker sort of extraordinary golf system, if you will, or the the way of I don't know if system is the right word, Tim. Approach. Approach. Thank you. Well, um, you know, when you're a private club, you basically see the same people day in and day out. And back when I started there, you know, it wasn't there was no computers, so we used to put the handicap sheets up manually in the, in a locker room. And I would always take a look at the people I'm coaching and take a look at their handicaps and see what's going on with that. And for the most part, everyone just stayed the same. 
Um, maybe they went down one or maybe they went up one. But at the end of the year, basically everybody stayed the same. And that's pretty much was the story for me almost all of my uh, years of, of teaching. Um, and even when I was given lessons, I didn't really see anything really happening. I would depart my wisdom to them. And if they couldn't do it, I would always sort of say, well, it must be their fault. Can't be me. I'm pretty well trained and I know what I'm doing. So I always sort of sort of blame them for not absorbing what I was asking them to do. Um, so after a while, it got very frustrating and very boring. I couldn't stand giving lessons anymore. And I gave a lot of lessons and I just really honestly didn't see much happening with those lessons. And I felt as though um, it became a chore for me to teach. And if I had to continue that way, uh, I would have stopped teaching. So what was it that was the, the turning point for you? What was the thing that, say, got you excited about teaching again? Well, uh, when I uh, listened to Fred, I realized that there may be a different way. It's not the only way. It's a different way. And, and by the way, Extraordinary Golf is not a system. It's a method that you can take a look at and go anywhere you want to go with it. You can put your own touches to it. But it, the basic premise, it's the premise of Extraordinary Golf is awareness. It's growing awareness. And you can go anywhere you want to go with that. Um, what I found was that coaching empowered people. It, it, got, it empowered them to learn. Instead mm -hmm. of me being the answer man, instead of me answering all the questions, they were the ones empowered to learn. And my job was no longer to impart information, but my job was to simply draw something out of, uh, of what they had. Everybody has a swing. There's not a beginner that doesn't have a swing. Everyone has a golf swing. They just simply have not experienced it yet. Um, George, you know, years ago before I'd met Tim, you know, I'd read Fred's book. When we had Fred Shoemaker on the show, it was a thrill to talk to him because like a lot of, you know, deep dive golf guys, I, I, I also suspected that there was a different approach. System was the wrong word. I just couldn't find a better one. But the thing about a, a extraordinary golf or, you know, people like Hebron and Shoemaker and yourselves that that look at golf in a different way. What I think what created a whole sort of industry of mental anguish around the game was because the way the old system was was that you would tell me what to do, and believe me, I took a lot of lessons. I would go and try and replicate it, and when I couldn't, it would frustrate me, and I would think I was too dumb to learn it. Not that the yes. teacher was wrong, but that I wasn't smart enough or good enough somehow to figure out how to hit a flop shot. What I love about Fred Shoemaker and the way that Tim approaches it and Hebron stuff is that it's like... You can show a person and they can learn it. But if you tell a person they're going to try and it, it doesn't, you can just tell them to do it. They don't ever learn it. They just do it by rote. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I don't even know if you have to show someone. I think your, your job as a coach is to bring out what they have and get them to experience things in a way that there could be certain distinctions. Um, they, uh, they feel this and here's something different. So, you know, my experience is that in the two seconds it takes to swing, very few people have any idea whatsoever what happens in the two seconds. Sure. Basically, basically, they make a swing, they look up at the golf ball, and they make a judgment of the ball. It's either if it's a good shot, they did good. If it's a bad shot, they did bad. I, I own a driving range. I see it every single day. It's simply an outcome. I shouldn't even call it a driving range. It's an outcome center. It's performance <laughs> outcome. People are just looking for outcomes. That's but right. The reality is out of outcomes – Nothing can really happen because outcomes are going to always change. 
if you're looking for outcomes to change the process, you will spend the rest of your life changing your investment. If you're looking for process to change the outcomes, then that's where the learning takes place. Wow. So, so Howard talked about his his girlfriend Rachel wanting to get into the game, and a, a few podcasts ago, he says, "Oh, who should I te- take her to? What teacher?" I said, "Howard, you can teach her." So, George, what I'd invite you to do is, why don't you just talk to Howard about how he can be a golf coach with Rachel? And I think this is applicable to whether it's a beginning golfer or a scratch player. What's the approach that you take as a coach with a person? Are you imparting your knowledge and saying, learn this? Or is there another way that you are acting as a coach? No, not at all. I'm not empowering my wisdom at all. So uh, this, by the way, is not a roadmap. And the really cool part about coaching is that I can learn as much from the beginner as as she or he can learn from me. And it's really cool because it's always different. So I would start out by saying first, could you uh, have a conversation? Uh, I'm sorry, what, 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 Howard. What's your girlfriend's name? Um, I don't know that you know uh, Rachel's going to want want her name bandied. <laughs> you about. just said it. Well, so said you it. said it. Um, no, but it, let, so let's just say G, girlfriend Rachel. We'll call her GFR. Okay. okay. So suppose you've got to start off with a conversation with with uh, with girlfriend A. <laughs> <laughs> But let's assuming you have a conversation with, with Rachel. And the first thing is, can you get a sense of um, what, you know, we all live in a story, some story. So can, can you get a sense of what, what Rachel's story is? That she thinks she has no hand and eye coordination, that she thinks she sucks as a player, you know, all the things that we live in. You just kind of get a sense of where she's coming from. And, and the next point is, you know, what does she want? Now, she's probably going to say, you know, I just, want, I just want to play golf with you. I'm doing this for you. And that's okay. But your job then will present some different possibilities to her. You might say, uh, you know, Rachel, do you enjoy the sunshine? Uh, do, you, do you enjoy the outdoors? Do you enjoy nature? Uh, do you enjoy camaraderie? Is it possible you can get away from your cell phone for a little bit? All those things are possible. I'm not telling you what's good for you, but present her with some possibilities of things that, that might interest her. Uh, once you do that, you, you begin to start changing or taking a look at her point of view, why she's doing this, and what her wants and needs are. Next question to Rachel is, hey, what do you want to do? What, what, and she'll say, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. Right, so you present her with a possibility. Well, you know, putting is what you see on TV, what Tiger Woods did, and full swings. You know what a full swing is. Where do you want to go? You want to go with putting? You want to go with full swings? She might say, well, I don't know. I said, well, what? And you keep at it. What do you think? What would really interest you today? She might say, well, I, I, I want to go to putting. Okay. It's a go on the putting green and start with a one-inch putt. Get her to feel things as whether she makes it or misses. She's probably going to make it. You might want to ask her to pay attention to how her body moves back and forth. And, and that could be a start. Mm-hmm. Always empower her. Always empower her. You do what she wants to do. She's in control. You, you let her tell you what you want to do as a coach. And, and that's and, really, I'm sorry, I was going to just interject and say, that's kind of really the basics of the um, extraordinary golf idea, which is to empower the student which is how brains function, to find it. You know, when Hogan said about, when he talked about digging it in the dirt, he didn't have somebody telling him how to dig it out of the dirt. He just felt it himself until he felt he found something that worked for him. Yeah. Well, Howard, I'll ask you a question. Would you rather be told something or would you rather discover something? And which one is lasting? 
and which one is fleeting. Uh, absolutely. And that was kind of my point about you can, when I say you can show somebody something, you can put, the, you need to show them that here's a, this is a putt one inch from the hole. Then let them learn how to move that ball themselves. Yes, you're, you're providing the, uh, the putt one inch from the hole. It's their experience. They right. get out of it, whatever they get out of it, and you're there to help them out with that experience. It's as simple as that, regardless of whether it's a beginner or whether it's an advanced player. You always go to they to what they want. If they don't know what they want, you keep poking at them. Believe me, you know, I, I've asked people a lot of questions, and, you know, they keep saying, I don't know, I don't know. And then finally they say, boy, I just want to hit it solid. Okay, right. let's go to solid. They always, there, there is some reason they're sitting in front of you. Um, if you create an atmosphere that's safe for Rachel, a really atmosphere that's safe for her to learn, where there's no failure, no judgments. It's amazing. It's amazing how she'll respond to it. So, George, how do you handle it when you have someone who's, say, maybe they've got more experience and they're having troubles with their game, then they maybe they're battling a big slice with their driver or with their irons. They just keep hitting, say, behind the ball and they're feeling frustrated. Let's work with that example. How do you work with someone in terms of they are frustrated and desperate to start hitting the ball solid rather than hitting behind the ball? How do you work with someone like that? Yeah, let's let's deal with the slice because that, that happens a lot. Um, I, I had a lesson uh, not too long ago where uh, when I was a training one, where a member came in and said, I'd like you to give a, a lesson to my guest. He's very difficult. I said, sure, let's go. So we sat down a little bit and the guest said to me, um, you know, he said, I've been taking lessons for 15 years. I've had 15 different golf pros. I started slicing. I'm still slicing. Can you fix my slice? And I said, no, I can't fix your slice. I, I don't want to be their notch, another notch in the belt. If you have 15, <laughs> I'm sure very qualified golf pros talking to you uh, about fixing slice. I, I, I can't fix your slice. He said, then why would I do a lesson with you? I said, well, you probably wouldn't. So I said, but let me ask you a question. How do you know you slice? And he got a little bit upset. I, he said, I, I've been doing it for 15 years. He said, the ball starts to the left and goes to the right. I said, no, but how do you know you slice? And he got really a little more upset. He, he said, because the divots left. I said, no, how do you know you slice? He said, why do you keep asking that question? I said, his name was Sam. I said, Sam, have you ever felt the club go away from your body into your body with an open club face? He said, well, no. Well, then you've never really experience the slice you know the ball slices but you haven't experienced so the lesson was this we went down to the driving range and we just hit slices i asked him to, for the biggest slice he could have just slice it as big as you possibly can the bigger the slice the better we were having a good time and he was hitting these god-awful slices and towards the end of the lesson he began to experience the club going out to end the end of the story is about three weeks later not with me on his own He's got rid of his place on his own. George, may I ask you a question as somebody that has, uh, you know, chased That's a That's an amazing story, by the it, way. It so. is. It, it, but I, I ask this on the, basics, uh, on the basis of that story that really, what is it about our, our nature that we so want others to tell us how? It's almost like an insecurity that we don't think it's within us. And I can tell you from somebody that has had a lot of lessons and hit a lot of golf balls. It came to me not so long ago, probably a couple of years ago, when I realized that most of what I learned as a player, and a, a pretty good one, most, all, in fact, all of what I learned to do is, is I learned it on my own. All yeah. the hours I spent 
playing around. And that's what I love about Hebron, too, is the idea that I played so much, I kind of learned how to do it. But for some reason, I still needed a guy to say, yeah, you're doing it okay. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think human nature is we're in a fix-it society. Something is broke, we need to fix it. But golf's a little bit different. You know, you only have two seconds and there's a ball there. It's not quite as easy to fix golf. It's not. It's hard to get our mind to do something within two seconds. So I, I think that along with the fact that, you know, we're the only species on the earth that has the ability to interfere. We interfere with things. We just simply do. It's our nature to interfere. I heard Fred tell a story one time. He said, you know, he said if there's a, if there's a squirrel up there on a tree and a, the limb broke and the, tr- the squirrel falls, he wouldn't get up and say, you know, I don't climb well on Wednesday. And by the way, <laughs> was anybody watching? <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Now, I don't climb hard. well after a hot dog. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think the two things are, that we battle is that. is It's two seconds to swing. There's a ball. Our instinct is to make contact with the ball. Our instinct is survival. You know, we play golf, we take the club back in a second, and the next thing is we got to survive. And survival in golf means I want to hit the ball, I want to look good, I want to feel good, that's why I'm here. And in my view, that's what changes everything in golf. It was interesting, um, George, is that you started by, you know, talking about uh, the GFR, I think, <laughs> how the approach, and say, you know, what do you like about golf? Well, you know, and maybe maybe she would say, I like being outside, I like, I like the escape. And and to me, I, I want to ask you, what is that connection to, say, the bigger picture of, of golf and to what we can get out of the game as opposed to chasing after the result? I, I think a lot of people tee off on the first tee and basically they're waiting for four and a half to five hours later based on the number on the scorecard to judge whether that day was a success or not. And to me, that's... Again, that's outcome. But what do you see the difference in terms of like that point of view of the big picture versus the minutia of trying to make a score? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about point of view. Why do you play golf? What's the reason you play golf? And I ask people all the time, especially the first lesson, is it possible to go out and have a, a terrible day but still have a good time? Could you have a terrible performance day but still have a good time? And most people say no. It would be it would be terrible. But suppose you can check that point of view out and and present some possibilities that maybe the, the terrible day playing golf is an opportunity to to learn. Maybe you could learn from the bad day. Is that a possibility? And people say, yeah, maybe that's possible. So I think you're always working at, at, at points of view. Always take a look how some, somebody's point of view is very valid. It's their point of view. But your job as a coach is to present other possibilities. And it, maybe it's, it's possible to change that point of view. Uh, I have a quick question, uh, George. Um, we're going to have to wrap up this part of our uh, interview because we're going to leave terrestrial radio on a, a sports network that we're on. But it would be great if you could hang around with us for our podcast extra. We can kind of explore some more things. And you people that download the show are, are going to hear some extra stuff. But I have a question as we wrap it up for both of you guys, which is people are listening now. They're going, yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and uh, But I got to go play golf. You know, what are these two guys talking about? And, and what would you direct? I mean, for me, reading Extraordinary Golf was a, a transformative experience in terms of understanding that there was another way. But quickly, uh, a quick comment from both of you about what someone listening might take from this conversation. George? Yeah, I would say someone uh, play golf with intention. 
So you go out to play golf, and my intention for today, what I want to pay attention to today, let's say I want to feel the club head every swing. I want to, I want to notice if I feel the club head every possible swing. I have a target. I'm going to make a swing. I don't give a, a rat's patoot where the ball goes, but at the end of that swing, I want to check out my intention. And if you play golf like that, if you play golf like that, I, I would guarantee you that your, that your outcomes would be better. Playing golf with some intention that makes sense improves golf. Timothy uh, O'Connor? Absolutely. Um, I would say w- one possibility was, what can I learn about myself today? What can I, after these 18 holes, what can I walk off the 18th green knowing that I didn't know before? That way, golf is a process. It's about learning. And it's, it's, a, it's not about judging whether the day was a success or not based on the number on the card. I think that, that, that when we can learn about ourselves and discover that we can take that into tomorrow's round or, or you know, into our life, I think that's part of the beauty of golf is this, big, it's this metaphor for life in which we can, um, you know, games are about, games in essence are about discovery and learning and having fun. So, and the, and the irony to me is that when we go into it to have fun, that we actually play some pretty good golf. <laughs> You know, I I would just like to add, it's interesting because as, you know, the three of us have been sort of searching and seeking an alternate way for some time. But for a lot of people, this is pretty new territory. Interesting, don't you think, though, that uh, Rory McIlroy is having one of the best years of his career. And what's he saying? I'm not my score. I've learned some perspective. I'm putting golf in the right spot. I have other things going on in my life. Golf doesn't. When he said, and, and George, you should know that Tim and I, we we got so excited when we heard Rory McIlroy say, I am not. Golf doesn't define me. It was like, we, you know, I'm surprised we didn't go to Chuck E. Cheese together. But you know what I mean? Like, those are things you didn't hear athletes say in the past. And it's almost like an idea whose time has come, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think if you listen to, to great players after they play or they shot their best round, they say, it's like time stood still. And I was just perfectly present to everything that was happening. If you watch Tiger, if you watch his mannerisms, he was different. He was different because he was slow. He was moving slow. He did everything slow. He was totally present to what he was doing. And, and I think that's got a lot to do with it. He was really under control. Okay, and, George, uh, just, just, the- I'm, gonna, I'm going to have to cut you off there, George. Uh, we got to wrap things up on uh, TSN. Uh, Tim and I will have more for you. Uh, next week, live at 11 a.m., or semi-live. Uh, thanks again to Adidas, TaylorMade, all the winners' names of the contest. They'll be on our Facebook page. We're going to continue uh, with George, more with Tim and I. You can download the show at uh, on iTunes uh, and uh, O'ConnorGolf.ca, Humble and Fred Show, and all of that. We'll see you next week. In other places But the horns are that sound Okay, there you go. Uh, that's the show. George, you're still there, I know. Uh, sorry about that, Timmy. I just running, you know, this This is how it's going to be when we run out of time at the end of the show here. Um, George, are you still there? Yes, still here. Tim, you still there? I is. Let me look at your face. Let me see. I can't see you, Timmy. There you Our go. great voice, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you seem like a nice guy, too. Um, 
so why don't we do a couple more minutes with George here, uh, if you if you want, and then you and I can uh, go back to uh, wrapping up uh, Tiger. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just thinking it was funny because you're talking about girlfriend Rachel. I'm like, no, no, she doesn't want her name, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, she, it's interesting. I, I asked him because uh, you know, I, I don't know if Tim told you. Like, I, I have literally. No one has tried harder at this game in terms of, you know, seeing different people hoping to become a great player because I'm a pretty good player. And uh, he's a scratch, George. Yeah, I hear you. And and but but more than that, I think I, I've been a student of the game a long time, and it wasn't until the mid '90s that I started looking at maybe the fact that I was throwing clubs and getting mad wasn't helping me win the club championship. And that's how this started. And Tim and I came together some, for, from a mutual place of maybe there's a different way. And I can tell you, George, from talking to people like you and, and having, you know, the experience of uh, Shoemaker and, and different reading, that you, it, is, it is so obvious to me and you, I'm sure, that this way that golf is, has been going is why it's not growing in popularity. And it's why that I, the example I always use, my dad had the I remember the cover of like the 1971 Golf Digest, How to Cure Your Slice. And then the 1991 right. Golf Digest, still haven't cured your freaking slice yet. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like we put people in orbit. Why can't we cure somebody's freaking slice? Well, Howard, how, how do you cure something? Exactly. If what? How do you cure how do you cure something that you haven't experienced? Right. If you have a place, how do you cure it? There's no cure for it. You haven't. You're, it's insanity for a golf pro to try to fix somebody's slice for something they've never experienced is insanity. It's just not. It's an insustainable. It can't be sustained. But that's the model. But that is the model. We go. We we watch Mike. We watch Michael Breed. Uh, we buy Golf Digest. It's not a dig, a dig on Golf Digest, but. We are always looking outside of ourselves for an answer, a fix. Yes, that's the current point of view. Our job is to present other possibilities. Maybe that, maybe that way is okay. But here's something else. Take a look. Check it out. You know, you know, it this isn't the only way. This is one way. That's all. Um, I, I, I apologize for referencing Hebron again and again, but one of the things he says in Play to Learn Golf, he says is there's not an exact way. There's just kind of a in-the-ballpark way. And, and uh, you know, whether I learned how to ride a unicycle or I learned how to snowboard in my 40s, all of those things are experienced by finding your kind of own way to do it. You know, like no one can tell you how to balance on one wheel. It, you have to fall a lot until you realize that you need to lean forward and balance yourself. But nobody could have told me that. They could have said, why don't you try a couple of different things? But nobody can fall for you. You have to, your body needs to experience it. Yeah, absolutely. And just one quick comment about my Hebron. You know, here's a guy that was national teacher of the year as a teacher. Yeah. And he shifted completely to something that was the opposite of what he does. So what does that say about my Hebron? I mean, it's a pretty amazing story. It really is. Well, I, that's why I thought your story was very similar. You guys were sort of traditional, stand on a range, give out lessons. And I loved what you said, too, George, to tell you the truth. And you said you just got sick of it because you weren't making any difference with it. I mean, right. can you imagine what what kind of life was that where you go like, wow, I've, I've done everything I can. I'm one of the best. And you were like a celebrated 
golf instructor. And if PGA master. And if you couldn't make a difference in someone's life, then it's not you. And it, and the problem is it's not them either. It's right. the 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 culture of golf is so I don't know, patriarchal or whatever you want to call it. It's so uh, not feelings oriented. It's just why a lot of people have dropped away from the game. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, one of the things, just imagine this. Imagine giving eight lessons and they're, and they're stacked up and you're giving one after the other and, and a guy's shanking the ball at the end of the lesson. I mean, you're praying to God he hits one good shot so you can end the lesson to get to the next lesson. <laughs> <laughs> It, it was just—it's uh, just total. It's a total. Uh, I was exhausted from it, and um, I, I was gonna—I was either gonna change or quit. I wasn't gonna keep giving lessons like that. So, George, we've talked about, in essence, people discovering their own swing, having their own experience, and in, self-coaching in many ways. So, what is what is the role a coach can play for someone? I, I, I there's still a role. Um, but what is it? How how do they work with a student to to? Is it about helping them, empowering them? What is the role of a coach? Well, let me just back up for one second. And I think the most difficult part of coaching for me was the coach without ego. It was unbelievably difficult for me to to put ego aside when I coached because you all coach for the same reason. You want to help people, but really the truth is it was really all about us. We want to look good in front of somebody. We want to let somebody know that we knew what we were doing. Sure. It's about us starting the right information. So to, to get to sift away ego from your coaching is a big deal. When you can do that, then the one important thing is the coach itself. Uh, how, to, how do you coach somebody? How do you empower somebody? How do you do what they want to do? How do you become a set of eyes for that person? How, how do you experience what they're experiencing? It's really a cool process. And I got to tell you, every coaching session is different and that's what i really like about it it's Good for just you. completely different timmy everybody. yeah so george when so again we'll go back to the example i used earlier uh say you're a coach at a, at a at a private club and you know that one of your members is really frustrated by hitting the ball fat all the time yes do you come to that lesson with okay i have the solution for you bill on how to do this here's what you do how do you work with it when you come to a lesson with someone like that, what is your approach, George? Well, first of all, I would never do what you just said. I would never say this is what you should do because I don't know what you should do. I know there's different options. We might take a picture of a player and ask him what he's aware of in his swing and uh, suppose he's stalling his body out. I mean, let him decide. And uh, there might be four or five things that, that might interest him it, that would help him with hitting the ball fat. I let him choose where he wants to go, and that's where we go, wherever it is. It's an informed decision. We might take a picture and take a look at it. We might see him backing up, not backing up. We could ask him if he's aware of it and maybe ask him simply, where do you want to go? Where do you, where do you think we should go to for, to help you out to, for, to compress a golf ball? Where do you think we should go? And again, they might say, oh, I don't know. And just keep poking. When you keep poking, they will take you to the answer. Um, I just was struck by the thought. And that's a, I, I love what you just said, but I think, you know, what we're all talking about I was just struck by this being the particular weekend it is. Why isn't there a, 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 a set of instruction or a dogma called, you know, teach a man to fish golf schools? Because <laughs> that's really what that's really what you're doing. You can like I can listen. I can look at somebody swing and go, your ball is in the wrong position. At least for me, it would be. But, you know, and that's what was, I guess, 
frustrating for you, frustrating for Hebron and people like that is because you keep giving the same person the fish every time they show up, but they don't know how to get it themselves. And if I may continue, uh, years ago, George, I I got out of golf for a, a while and I got a pilot's license. Yes, I know. What, what could be more OCD than going from hitting golf balls to landing airplanes? But when my first instructors were showing me or giving me the set of circumstances to, to land an airplane for the first time, they can't tell you how to do it. There's a feeling involved with it. There's some technical stuff, but it really does come down to, in flying we call, call it your hands and feet. You need to feel what it feels like. And like riding a bike, until you get that balance, you don't learn it. And and that's what I think in terms of a, a good golf coach puts you in positions or not. Okay. Puts you in situations for you to learn it yourself, for you yeah, to absolutely. discover it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the environment is important. I mentioned earlier that you, you must create an environment that's safe to learn, non-judgmental. I'm not going to judge shots. We're not going to judge you. We're in an environment that's safe, safe to play, safe to fail, safe to succeed. Ne- neither one of those two things matter. It matters what you experience during the course of a time that you're together. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh, Tim and I are just going to, uh, I'm going to say thank you very much. I know you, you and Tim talk a lot. What a pleasure to have spoken with you. Uh, Tim, any final words for George before we let him go and wrap up Tiger Week? Um, George, what what was the difference it made in your game, real quickly, in terms of when you made this shift? Well, it made a huge difference in my game. I, I stopped thinking about what I had to do in the swing and just stopped paying attention to what was happening. I, I'm, I mean, I'm 70 years old. I'm playing better golf now than I've ever played in my life. And it's not because I'm physically better. I'm certainly not. Uh, but, but certainly I can feel things in my swing I've never felt before. I can feel the club head. I can associate with a target, which I've never done before. And um, I, I think it's made a huge difference for me, not only in, my, in the game, but, but also in coaching. I think you have to be able to experience some things yourself. Not that it's the same for everybody, but uh, the more you can do it yourself and experience it yourself, make the better coach you are. That's awesome stuff. Well, George, um, thanks so much, man, for coming on uh, our little podcast here and uh, sharing some time and, uh, and your wisdom. Thank you, hey, George. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, what a pleasure. Hopefully we'll uh, speak to you again. So you're just going to hang up there on the Zoom. Thank yep. you. Very good. You're gone now. Let's see when his name goes away. Hey, I've got a – hey, come here for a second. Seriously, this will be interesting. Now, th- now, his name is still there. Does that mean he's there? I guess so. Okay, George, hang up. Hey, you have to sit there. This will be interesting for you, Tim. Is this your uh... – is no. this one of your... This is one of my kids here. Yeah, Let's that's what... I, I, I thought I heard like, someone clearing Hello. their throat. Hi. Can you just talk into the microphone? <laughs> what do you new? Hold on. Hi. Just get over here. I'm trying. Can you, can you Can you hear Charlie? I can. Charlie, say hi to Tim. Hi, Tim. How are you? Good. Good morning. Good morning. Hold on. I actually no, no. Really no, don't use those. You put those headphones on. Oh, I so know. I just want you to tell Mr. Tim... What, uh, <laughs> this will be good. So, uh, do you want to describe to Tim, you know, when, uh, what was daddy like, uh, telling you about the masters last night? Well, we were out for sushi and my dad took me through like a, Here, just, can you oh, sorry, like yeah. a 20 minute sort of timeline of leading up to this win. And then 
He started crying over hand rolls about time. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. And then I was crying because he was yeah, crying. And then I made her cry. Very, It was very moving. Thank you, honey. It was very beautiful. I appreciate you coming over here. No problem. All right. That's it. Yeah. All right, bye. That's it. Bye-bye. Yeah. Um, so is your, I can't tell here on Zoom. Is there any way to hide non... Oh, there we go. So um, well, that was good. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, it was really... That was really fun. Yeah. And um, this Zoom thing is cool, cause I, but I can still hear me a little bit coming back through your headphones, but that's fine. Um, we'll work through these little things. It's like a, a round of golf. Maybe you're hitting it out to the right a bit. From our experience, we'll, well, we'll learn from it. But do you want to connect back to uh, 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 Tiger a little bit there in that little tournament well, that he won? Yeah, you know... One of the things that, you know, George mentioned it, I think, about Tiger's rhythm. And um, and I would just add that in terms of uh, uh, the amateurs listening, our fellow amateurs, that one of the things I would have people maybe pay attention to uh, as a takeaway is two things about Tiger <clears throat> that's different. One is he's not, he is not, he, he figured this out somewhere in the last 18 months. Because he came back, and remember, in early 18, he was obsessed with his driver numbers. Because that's all we were hearing about. Kind of what Mickelson... Yeah. Go ahead, and I can see what you're doing. Are you... Uh, oh, I think George is listening. No, I, I don't... No, he's gone, isn't he? George, are you still there? No. Hello. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. I didn't realize you were sending me a secret text. Uh uh, about a year ago, Tiger was obsessed with his numbers. I'm in the 120s. He wanted to be his. But something clicked in his brain when he went, oh, I don't really need to swing it this hard. And so two things I would say to people listening. Just look at the rhythm and how he has dialed it back. And so I would invite people this weekend or whenever they get a chance to play is to try and. And I heard this years ago about swinging at 60 and 70 percent and see what that feels like. And the other thing I think you should notice that Tiger did is Tiger doesn't take practice swings to practice his golf swing. Tiger Woods takes practice swings to practice the shot he's about to play. Your thoughts? The whole thing about swinging in rhythm is that's a hard one for a lot of people. Like you start... They start to think I'm going to swing slow or something. So they do that that thing where they start to think in words in hoping that their body is going to follow that. Yes. As George was talking about, you can't really do anything with your swing, whether you know, try to fix your slice or whatever, if you don't experience it. So what? So to sort of bring that down a little bit more granular, as people say, when you can feel your swing and you stay connected, say, with the feeling of your club head, you are going to swing in rhythm. So here's something that you can try, uh, Swing Thought listeners, is take, say, your uh, your lob wedge or sand wedge, whatever. It's the heaviest club in your bag. And take little swings and stay connected with the feeling of the club head. Just stay connected. In post-impact, stay with that. And observe, just start to observe and experience what's going on in your swing and I think what you'll gradually cotton on to is that there's a lovely rhythm there that happens. It's almost like when the club goes to the back of it, it starts to slow down and then it kind of and then it starts to speed up again. 
when you're connected to the club and you're feeling that you're going to swing in rhythm. Mm-hmm. So it just that connection will help you stay in rhythm. When you're not connected, when you're in thinking, concerned about outcome, is this going to go, you know, into the crap on the right or, you know, am I going to bogey this hole? You're disconnected and that's when there's a bit of confusion in your mind and body and you tend to swing fast and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, that's a different way to feel it rather than somebody saying swing slower. I might exactly. suggest you take what Tim just said and see if you can experience uh, a, a reduction in effort. And that sort of goes to if you're high stands, Charlie's got to, doesn't matter. Um, but there's a, there's there. If you can feel the club head, it, it, you need to sort of lighten your hands on it, let's say. But exactly. once you start to feel it, if you can think about a reduction in the effort around making that motion, I think it will. But but what was? But it connects to what Tiger was doing. If you look at his practice swings now, yeah, he's pra- he's, he's imagining the shot. But what you can also see him is he's really kind of. Um, it's such a languid kind of slower motion, less violence than it used to be. And I think that, you know, I went back and I, I watched a lot of the the fourth round again. And then he just had that look on his face. Uh, Joey LaCava talked about it that, you know, he really didn't didn't say much to Tiger. The three words were intense but loose. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like your when you talk to your team about, you know, slightly caring slightly less. But you still care. But you could just see that he was intense, but loose at times when he needed to be. And I think that's a great takeaway from, you know, arguably the best player that's ever played. It's relaxed, but still athletic. Yes, sir. It's kind of both there. But what I was, um, darn it, I kind of lost my train there. What was it about Tiger's swing there that um, it's not violent? Oh, here's what it was. Um, it's really it's always been interesting to me is that when Tiger goes to hit say a big cut it looks so exaggerated you know he kind of does this thing where he'll kind of go forward call the the Gary player follow through and the big hold off you know it looks so exaggerated yeah. or when he wants to hook it you yeah. know this big thing with his body sweeping around or when he wants to hit it high he is so much into hitting that shot and experiencing it as opposed to trying to swing correctly. Yeah. He's all that is like, I don't, do you know of any other player you see who maybe only Bubba in terms of the way their body contorts when they're trying to hit a certain shot? Well, that, that's a great, I think we should end it on that. That idea of, you know, this, forget the hero's journey, the fool's journey is to continue <laughs> to try and do this thing to make a correct swing considering that you never have the same shot twice you know one of the things i've been doing in my practice the last few weeks after reading the uh the book uh uh what's that sir play golf to learn golf no the um the girls pia and lynn the uh every shot has a purpose every shot has a purpose and one of the things they say in your practice is uh, why would you put the ball two things why would you put it on a perfect lie which is what most practice ranges are and why would you hit the same shot twice you never do in a round of golf and i'll tell you what i went to the range the other day i told you and i played nine holes on the range and it was a bit frustrating because i wanted i'd hit a you know a less than 
good driver or whatever. I had this image of where I wanted to hit it, and I couldn't. I had to put my driver back in my bag because it wasn't yep. time. Because that's what that because it interrupts that cycle of oh I just have to fix this no you got to hit the 8 iron that you've left yourself on that par 4 and that's the hard thing to do cuz cuz we are creatures of habit that's right so you know for how many decades you know have I gone to a range and hit a shot and go uh you know what maybe <laughs> I play a little bit back in my stance no it wasn't that uh maybe I'm taking it too inside all that nonsense that does not happen in golf and what are the I learned so much from Ed Coglin, and we said it before. I love what he said. He says, golf is not a, a matter of repeating a solution. So let's say you find something on the range, uh, my right elbow falling in front of my hip. So I'm going to take that to Saturday's round and repeat that solution. That never, never works. It just That's not the way life is. But if I approach it that every shot I'm going to find a solution, I'm going right. to solve that puzzle that's a different thing and that's what golf is is always presented with a different shot so that mindset of i'm going to figure this out and have this this is a new experience but and, but but that's the reliability like I, you know i've had some conversations with ed where you know i i talk a lot about not just with him but you know one of the things i've you know sort of tried to figure out for myself is it's not consistency that people seek. It's reliability that they want. And what the reliability... What's the What's the, so why don't you to define what reliability is? Well, it's, it's, to, what, it's on, to piggyback to what you just said. If I am... If on Wednesday I feel all of a sudden my right elbow closer to my right hip in the downswing and that all of a sudden produces these beautiful shots, then I want to go on Saturday and hit nothing but those shots. That's that's a, a recipe to be inconsistent because you don't have that same shot you had on Wednesday, plus your body feels different. But reliability is knowing that come what may, and that's what Tiger has, and that's what top-level athletes have. Come what may, I can rely on myself to at least try and solve the next puzzle. Nice. Well done, sir. I was if really I were I'd like to hug good. you right now. Virtually I will hug you. Um I have my arms my arms are outstretched. Here so, we go. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's it, man. Teach what well, that's the way to, we should that's what our our seminar should be. Teach a man to fish uh, golf instruction. That is that is great. <laughs> Um, speaking of that, on this Easter weekend, right? I, I wish you and your family, uh, I whatever, happy Easter. I hope it all works out for you, kids. Uh, I'm going to be uh, tonight. Or we're recording this on Friday, so Friday night is the first night of Passover. I'm giving that a pass. Saturday, I'm going to be passing over with my kids at the uh, at their at their grandmother's. Nice. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, if it ever stops raining, I hope to golf at some point. My first tournament is uh, just a couple weeks away. I have a qualifier on uh, May 6th, I think. Has so, Glencairn uh, announced its official opening yet? Next, uh, I think uh, the 25th is the opening. What about Blue Springs? It's. I think it's o o October. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> April uh April thirty first or May first. So, uh, and that might and if it's May first, I think that's Wednesday. So it'd be like just jump right into men's night. Yes, which would that, be fun. Um, well, listen, my brother, this was great. Uh, I'm going to get uh, editing. Uh, I guess uh, I guess this is the podcast extra. I don't know. I can't even tell you how long all this was, but it was worth it. Thank you very much. It was fun. Yeah, it was great to have George on, and 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 so much fun to. Uh, 
to revisit uh, Tiger and our tears of joy. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It was it was fun. I'm, I'm telling you, I, want, I wanted Charlie to tell you. Last night, I was telling her the the story, and I I started to tear up again. She started crying, and we're having uh, hand rolls at a sushi restaurant. Um, I'll see you later, man. Bye. Bye bye. Step inside. Mm-mm.